All right, everyone, and welcome to Web Zero, the crypto pod where we talk not about building on top of Web 2 or Web 3, but starting all the way from scratch and rebuilding our infrastructure. I'm Bitchel Ritson, and I'm here with my co-host, Timlik Miptev. And uh, today, perhaps contrary to our nature, we're going to do something that might be a little unpopular here, and we're going to start by defending Web 2. What do you think about that, Tim? Does Web 2 need defending from the depths to which it's been relegated? So it needs defending from people who are like uh, not completely reprehensible. So it's very, very often defended <laughs> <Okay>. by, <laughs> by like, um, you know, VC types who are really mad that all this money is floating around in, like, in crypto. And also it's defended a lot by sort of, you know, hardworking SaaS founders who went to Harvard or Yale and then wanted to start, like, you know, a company to provide B2B for the B2C. We hate those guys. No, I mean, seriously, like, yeah, no irony. Anyway, leaving, leaving that aside, I think it needs a defense from people who really, really care about crypto and making it happen. And I think it needs a better defense than just like, oh, well, they have good UX or something like that. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, we need to acknowledge what is working, what is not, and, and what we can learn from it and its history. Because it's not as if everything that is out in so-called Web 2 is totally reprehensible, has nothing that can be learned from or, or, or salvaged. And I think that the way that we wanted to go about this was actually by taking a step back in the time machine and doing a little history lesson for, for our listeners and go all the way back to the, the dinosaur era before the phenomena known as big tech. So, Tim, you're a little bit older than me, you know, 70, 80 years old. And I'm wondering, uh, as a cool, hip, young person, what was it like back in the the early aughts before Google, Facebook, and and Twitter had transformed everything we know about the web? Yeah, I mean, so graduating from high school as, you know, like about as a 55-year-old was definitely strange and threw a lot of people, but I think (laughs) it adds a lot to my... Now, so I was, you know, in the early aughts, I I was in college. And I think the main things are sort of just reset about what we think. And I think a lot of our listeners will remember this era, but the ones like you won't because you were like four. Um, the main thing yeah. to remember about it is that um, big tech did not exist as a category. It wasn't a thing people thought about. There very much was a sense of like an evil empire, but that was Microsoft. It was, it was a little bit on the decline because Apple had started to have its rise again with like jobs coming back. And so there was... Uh, like, you know, OS X and programmers were like, you know, all really like all really into that as the thing to program on um, for their working machines. Uh, but yeah, so like to the degree that there was what we think of as like evil big company, it was Microsoft. Um, and the other thing was that after this spurt in the 90s of the dot com boom, when programming was uh, super lucrative and everyone was, you know, doing startups and I was just at the tail end of that. I was, a you know, like a junior in high school when that happened. Um, after that, programming fell in stature a lot, and it wasn't a cool thing to do. So, I, I mean, you can just do it by the numbers. Like in, I think Harvard now, they have one it's in a cool given now. class. 
it's it's cool. There's like I mean I think it's like literally maybe a fifth or a third of people in the university are majoring in computers. It's science. It's insane. Uh, when That's I was incredible. there, it was like you know in a given year going into it, it was like twenty people. Everyone knew who everyone was. Everyone knew who the wow. one or two girls in computer science were. There was it was like literally. <laughs> It was yeah. It's not like a joke of like, haha. There aren't as many women in computer science. It was literally like, there's less, there's one girl in computer science. I think she's reasonably cute. Sounds like the NFT NYC these days. I haven't I haven't checked that, but I just assumed it would be like you know. I was seeing tweets about um, models being paid to go there and then feeling like they were, they were trapped in this um, finger food small talk to get their their paycheck. Well, uh, I think that you you bring up an important point in discussing what it was like before these companies, big tech, existed. Because as popular as they are to hate now, things like Google and Facebook, they actually solved some pretty interesting problems from a computer technology and and even social digital interaction standpoint. Yeah, I think the one we might get in, I, I, I think I know where you're going with this, and we'll probably talk about the degree to which they became operating systems. Maybe not, maybe even leaving Google aside for a bit, but there's this really interesting story arc with Facebook for this like almost brief moment where it really did move in the direction of becoming an operating system. And I don't want to rehash too much, but you know, if you want me to, I can kind of go into what I see as the, you know, one of the biggest benefits. I want you to. So we should define what Web 2 is. Please. Yeah, it's, it's the model of computing where everyone is aligned in a database. And so the original internet was all about, you know, getting different computers to network together. Then there was AOL. Um, that went down. And so then you had this period during the, you know, during the 90s into the early 2000s where, you know, it was very much about um, computers interacting with each other, you know, doing email, peer-to-peer file sharing was a big thing. And that has some pluses, but it also has a lot of big minuses. And I think Web2 was this really useful hack where you take all the users, uh, you build big network effects and put them all in your systems. You know, I think people have seen pictures of those huge data farms that uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook have. And then once you have that, uh, leaving aside any business, you know, perspectives, pro- just from a programmer's perspective, you now have the ability for them all to interact smoothly. And literally in your program, you can write, you know, let Facebook user X do stuff with like, you know, this group. You basically, you make them more, you more, more tractable and possible to manage. And I think that that required giving up a lot of the early vision of the internet or even the you know late 90s version of it uh, but it came with really substantial benefits which is that users and programmers really like operating systems like if you can put everything in one place where they can access it either for one company to do it or as you know maybe we'll talk about how Facebook opened that up at some point uh, there, there's really high demand yeah and I think it's worthwhile to even talk about what we mean when we say an operating system, because I think Mm -hmm. for many people, conceptualizing something like Facebook as an operating system system would seem counterintuitive. You know, it's not the Mac OS, it's, it's not Google Chrome, it's not something through which they interface every part of their computer. And yet, something like Facebook can provide a type of overlay that 
acts as a layer through which they access the internet and more and more the way you access the internet is the way you access your life. Let me pose that back to you as a question. Uh, what would you say, like, let's, let's stick with Facebook for the remainder of this discussion. What would you say that Facebook is overlaying if it is an operating system? All right. It provides a layer primarily to, through which to interact with friends, acquaintances, other people on the internet. It's a, a social layer, a, so, you know, social network. But I think when you talk about the way these tech companies provided experiences in a networked context, it provides now much larger than just social experiences. There's financial transactions, there's selling and buying and groups that I guess all fall within different ways to network but are much larger than what I was doing in in 2008, which is just posting on friends' walls and saying, you know, what up, talking to the girls I knew, the three girls in CS or something. Yeah, I think um, one way, I think when you get back to saying that it was an overlay over social, I think it's important to remember what we really mean by that, which is that we're saying that, like, the internet doesn't natively have a concept of uh, users and users with categories and extra information attached to them, right? It just has a concept of, you know, basically IP addresses, right? I want to send information over the wire to this. That's about the level that, you know, um, you know that Linux is aware of users, whereas Facebook is able to sort of lock in each of those users. And I, when I say lock them in, I mean give them an identity, make them log in to access that identity. And then the programs, you know, Facebook's internal programs, or as we'll get to later, external programs, can keep attaching more data to that identity that, like, applications can use. So when we talk about, like, what's a friend? A friend is a person who's first been sort of fixed in amber by Facebook, and, like, you know, they're there. They're (laughs) locked down. And they can add information to them, like, this is Jesse's friend, right? And this person is in these groups. And you can kind of take that identity, lock it, and start adding stuff to it. And that's what it's really, in my opinion, overlaying and why it was so effective. Because if you can get a lot of people into that system and then let them all over start overlaying in that way, a lot of possibilities open up. I mean, we were talking about this uh, yesterday when, you know, just the, the way that the experience of something like Facebook or even earlier, MySpace, Tom, we miss you, where are you, was, was very different when Facebook first launched because their, the API was open and there was an ability for users and developers to craft uh, the experience in a way and craft different ways to interact with your friends. So I should make one big caveat here because people are going to listen to that and be like, no, it wasn't. Um, Facebook didn't. Facebook started as a really limited experience. Um, the initial, when people do the whole, you know, mythology of like how it, you know, first only accepted people from Harvard, then expanded out to other Ivies, and then went from there. At that time, all you could do was incredibly simple stuff, like post on, basically post on people's walls and add friends. And 
the internet was so kind of disorganized then that even that was a huge value add. Like, literally being able to, like, you know, bookmark Mm -hmm. who I knew at Harvard and be able to message them had, like, huge product market fit. Um, But... My MySpace did have that. Like at the time when Facebook was very limited, MySpace did have that ability to like inject random HTML, make random apps. I'm sure there were tons of hacks from people, you know, doing things with their database. It was much more of a free for all that sort of had this vision, but not as far as Facebook later went. Well, there's the immortal days of the Truth Box, which I remember from high school, which was uh, an app that you could install for people to leave anonymous comments on your MySpace, which was a great idea for high schoolers. And (laughs) people just got to go on and say, I saw you kissing that boy behind there and you're a little slut or you're smelly. And uh, I certainly... I never received anything but glowing comments, but it caused a bit of uh, <laughs> chaos, even more drama than who is in whose top eight. So there's real repercussions to these things, Tim. I don't want anyone to think this isn't serious. This actually illustrates like the benefit of having this over like generic overlay system where you can have the idea of like users and then letting them do stuff because we actually had a version of this in late 90s, you know, northern Massachusetts uh, high school scene before any of these existed. And it was literally that, you know... I think we had these, like, message boards for, like, you know, for track runners. And I would, like, because people knew who was who, (laughs) and that formed a kind of network effect and overlay, I would go post under, like, the name of my biggest rival and tell everyone that, like, you know, you all are, you know, you all are little (laughs) bitches. I'm going to, like, tool you all. I'm the greatest. And so the kid, like, he was this very, like, you know, nice, shy kid who, like, you know, freaked out, like, wondering what was (laughs) happening and why someone was doing this. And it was just because I was jealous because he beat me a few times. That's, but that's like, I think the, the idea then is that you don't have to put in the prior work of, you know, building up who's who in these outside networks. You can just start using the network to like sort of generically offer this, like this kind of rich experience to everyone with the truth box and to all friend groups. Mm-hmm. Which is and, important. I mean, this is another thing that I think we're going to return to is the ways in which identity is really important in um, the types of experiences um, that we want to deliver. We've, we've talked about Urbit before and, and may talk about it again, but that's one of the primary tools that Urbit has at its disposal to offer different types of social economic grouping experiences is, is permanent identities. And that's something that Facebook delivered on a social scale early on. Yeah, and let's like just be clear to kind of keep the analogy. Um, Urbit is very much offering the same value proposition that that you know early and for a while you know Facebook was offering of locking in an identity and then being able to attach information to it that programs could use. Um, and so it's doing it in a different way that hopefully will expand better and give more possibilities. Um, which is why you know I'm pretty excited about it. But it's important to know that the value proposition at the, at its heart is the same. And maybe I could ask you to put that into a succinct phrase. If you were to say, what is the value proposition of that type of identity-driven network, simply? Um, your programs can be a lot better. You can do a lot more stuff. Like, it just, it just turns out there's a lot more that users can do with each other and that, importantly, developers and, like, kind of one-off developers can provide for users to do if they have that. It basically just turns out that 
people think of identity as this thing of like they always go to reputation. Like there's this weird trope I have that I kind of make fun of in Urbit because it's where I hang out, but I think it applies to a lot of stuff where like every time there's a hard game theoretic or economic or incentive problem in a system someone's trying to design that might be on Urbit, they'll uh, they'll always always say but maybe Urbit's like I, reputation and ID system can help us solve this. And it's like never the case. It's like never how you want to use it. And what you, what you really want is just that it just turns out that when you're writing an application or interacting in a system, you always go to the idea of I want to send a message to this person. I want to allow this person into a group. I want to you know, put this person in a list I have of who is my friends and who is my enemies. I want to you know, start a poker game and automatically allow anyone from this set of people. It's just this, oper- this fundamental operation that comes up over and over again and has very little to do with how we think of identity in... Um, you know, in like a reputation sense, it's a lot closer to identity in like an identity theft sense. Yeah. And I think that what we're finding out is that identity has a real value programmatically. And perhaps it's worth taking a, a step back just for two seconds here to, to say very briefly what Urbit is, because I think it informs both of our views on this space quite heavily. So Urbit is a peer-to-peer network and operating system. There's many metaphors for how this works. Some people call it the thousand-year computer, but the aspect that we are discussing here is that all users on Urbit have a permanent and immutable ID with actual value, uh, both physically, because it's difficult to um, set up, but also monetarily, and that constancy gives a lot of, enables a lot of different things programmatically in the way people interact with each other. And I think, like, just because it'll come up so much in these podcasts, like, I don't want to apologize for referring to Urbit a lot. It's very much a feeling like if it was 2011 and you were really into the idea of mobile phones being the next big thing and the apps that would be on them. Like, for me, Urbit is, like, you know, mobile phones. It's this primitive that unlocks a lot of stuff. And that's actually sort of its own interesting wave to talk about, but we should stay on the, you know, straightforward everyone in a database web two wave. All right, Tim. So I think I'm going to take us back to this idea we discussed earlier of an operating system and that people really like operating systems. They like a unified experience and you had discussed this somewhat interesting idea of Facebook as the rise of the Web2 operating system. Yeah, it's weird to talk about now because I think it's much more limited in its functionality in 2022. From what I've seen, I actually haven't even used it in about you know five or six years. Um, but if you go back in time, there's this very weird part of history. By our thesis, it's exactly what you would expect, which is that Facebook actually moved towards becoming an operating system once it had successfully handled the identity and social graph piece. Uh, but I think I asked you a few days ago to research for this for this podcast uh, Facebook's developer API and what it was like, you know, 15 years ago or so, uh, and Twitter's to some degree, but I think Facebook's is more interesting. And you know, what did what did you find? Well, it was actually almost impossible to find. Anything. It was strangely as if they'd erased this whole episode in history from the internet because I was pretty young, relatively speaking, when Facebook 
grew in popularity. I was one of the first people on Facebook in my high school in 2007 or eight or so. I got on it because I'd gone on a vacation where a, a cute city girl had said that no one cool was on MySpace anymore. Everyone was on Facebook. And so I missed the whole API change and, and trying to find information about it, it was totally scrubbed. I don't think I've ever heard you tell a story that involves an explanation of motivations that doesn't involve like girls. Like I've never I've never seen that like not be not be the reason. If my girlfriend is listening, that is not true. And I am motivated only by pure ideals. Okay, okay. I thought she would like think that this accounted for your raw animal dynamism. But yeah, it's um <laughs> It's it's weird because I remember it a little bit better, but I, one thing I know for a fact is that there were multiple country like companies in the hundreds of billion millions, and then I think some in the billions that were built on this and came out of it. And now it's like, you know, you can scrounge around in Wikipedia if you know what you're looking for, and starting from the trail of Zynga or something. Uh, but it was it, it was a really big economic thing uh, that had a ton of product market fit with developers and users and then sort of, you know, vanished. So I can get into what it was roughly, which was just that Facebook started as this really basic thing where you would, uh, you know, be able to add friends, post stuff on their walls, and they, they slowly moved that in the direction of being an operating system. There were more complex operations that you could do, and at some point it must have been it was 2008 at the latest, or uh, um, maybe 2007. They opened that up as an API for outside developers. Essentially, Facebook was this sandbox, and as a developer, you could go in and start writing programs that said, um, let Tim install this program, and then all of his friends can see what you know music he recommends. Or stuff, you know, stuff like that. It basically opened up all of these pieces of identity that Facebook had locked down and opened them up as a thing that you could write programs to. And pretty simple ones because the programs would just sort of run in this Facebook sandbox. You didn't have to provide a lot of, you know, a ton of outside resources. In particular, I remember Graffiti, which was a little app that allowed you to draw cartoons on your friends' walls that had a, a 30-day... Renaissance, where if you weren't graffitiing on someone's wall, then you were nobody. Yeah, and think what that involves. Like, it's it's actually, it's pretty simple, but it needs Facebook to exist. Like, it involves someone making a program that says, once a person has installed this, anyone who's their friend, as checked by Facebook, you can kind of just delegate that to the operating system, can go and, you know, write this graffiti. And I'll write the code to, like, you know, say what graffiti is, or probably I'll plug in some library. But Facebook is handling everything about who gets to do that, and I don't have to think about it. And then it's deployed there. Um, but there were, there were a lot of other apps after that. Like, do you remember, like, the names are still, I think, familiar. Like, do you remember Mafia Wars, Farmville, stuff? It was all these really crappy Farmville, games. Yeah, that, of course. How did that even work? I just would see friends playing it, and because I'm, you know, have very sophisticated tastes, I didn't install it. But for the people, how, what was it? What was it like? <laughs> Can you remind them? I I didn't play, but my understanding is perhaps it was actually a uh, crypto predecessor because I think there was some sort of economy in in which you could in, engage with other people in some sort of protean farm digital currency we have i'm sure thousands and thousands of listeners and we're going to get some angry 
urban messages from people who said that this is not how Farmville works. You weren't there. I was in the trenches of Farmville. Honestly, I welcome that because I'm just trying to fill in the holes in my memory from this time. Like I was also like drinking heavily in this phase, so a lot of it is you know lost to lost to time more. So it's it's actually just great if they can fill in some of those gaps created by you know the Boston area and you know Northern Asian alcoholic cultures, but. Yeah, so, like, this kind of, this all, like, grew really heavily, and there were, you know, these companies that were making all of, you know, these games were pretty permissionless. They could just go in and make it. They were making heavy use of Facebook's social graph and its identity, also just other basic pieces of the platform, and it got really big, and then, I don't know when, but it must have been sometime in the early 2010s when it just sort of started to go away, and there's some sort of interesting alternate futures there ways that could have gone yeah it it was sort of disappeared we were talking about for um like business reasons and some proprietary data keeping but then became even more extreme after the uh, cambridge analytica scandal in which the apis were completely closed right yeah so i think one thing to remember about that is that by that time that cambridge analytica happened during the 2016 election um the the interesting stuff in the API had already been sh- had been shut down, and it was just this horrible soulless thing for advertisers to use. So basically, like they had stopped letting you write awesome like you know arbitrary games and distribute them or whatever. And it was basically just like you know we have some APIs to let people who want to buy advertisements from Facebook and show them to users uh, target information about them so that they can target their ads to certain demographics because that's their whole you know, thing they're selling. And that actually gets into one thing that this has just sparked in my mind a little bit when you were saying that Farmville and the others had these proto-crypto economies, which was that, I mean, you can imagine a different future if crypto had existed then. And it's not inconceivable that crypto could have existed then. Um, And if it had, there would have been a lot more things people would have been trying to do with these and also probably a lot of ways for Facebook to monetize them. In alternate ways, because I think the real reason it got shut down is that it was just far more lucrative for Facebook to like not leak value to these outside parties. And actually, in a lot of ways, there weren't the right monetization methods for Facebook to become a real platform. It was poised to become this like one platform to rule them all, where it has your social graph, all these applications that you're doing. They could have taken that much farther and made it much more robust and interesting to program on. And instead, probably for economic reasons, uh, they shut all of it down and just went to like you know selling you ads while you yelled at people about uh, you know whatever the election was then. Well, it seems like you know what Facebook sort of needed was blockchain. There, that there was a certain types of interactions that people wanted to engage in and couldn't. And so, what Facebook needed to do was control all our data and then sell it. <laughs> yeah. And the int- like, it's interesting that blockchain stuff has a lot more financial upside. But to you know, to be clear, if we're talking about that speculative future, my opinion is that in Facebook's specific case, I think it sailed. We saw in two thousand, I want to say nineteen, when or it was either eighteen or nineteen, when they tried to launch Diem, their own cryptocurrency, and you know, presumably try to achieve this effect, although they didn't have the rest of the operating stuff, system stuff, that it was shut down regulatorily. Um, and they also haven't done anything, or nor has anyone really, to like you know turn their things back into operating systems. The idea that that could be done is the 
you know, the foundation of my based web two thesis, as I lovingly call it, which is this idea that there's this like mm-hmm. promised savior of web two who could come into existence at some time, like the Quizich Hadarach of web two, who would, you know, appear <laughs> and not, and like, and basically sort of start like he was Facebook in 2009. He would like first accrue the users in some way and then reveal his or her true powers and say like, basically, you know, we're getting a reset. It's 2009 again, but instead of, like, you know, closing off the APIs, I'm going to keep making this platform better and better for developers, adding new primitives, like ways for you to interact with users. Uh, there will be crypto here. Uh, you can do what, you know, you can write apps that, like, you know, let you borrow against money against how many followers you have and then degenly, like, gamble that somewhere, right? And, you know, furthermore, he's, like... Um, <clears throat> I know that this will not be popular with, you know, European and U.S. governments. So we are, like, you know, based in X jurisdiction where, you know, they can't find me. Um, And this thing is going to, you know, going to be awesome. I still think that I sort of always look in the back of my mind for that to come because I think that if I believe so strongly in Urbit, I think that's the thing that could kill Urbit. I think it's unlikely, but it's it's there in the back of my mind because there are technical advantages, uh, especially like as a quick growth hack, uh, to being able to treat all you know put all users in one place. <clears throat> it's a bit technically easier. So, in addition to Urbit, that probably is this mystical being that will come up from time to time that I you know now call Based Web Two, but I like I should probably it has these very messianic like components to it. Well, unless um, a, a Timothy Chalamet rises from the ashes of Web <laughs> 2 to save it, I think you have sort of seen the, the rise and demise of Facebook in particular, but other systems from the, from the beginning to this, it's the crumbling dinosaur that we, that we have now. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I mentioned earlier the timeline I was on, and that put me in, you know, direct intersection, at least in a time, in a time sense, uh, with Facebook and with Zuckerberg when he was doing it. I wasn't, you know, really personally acquainted with him, but we were in the same classes, uh, you know, in freshman, sophomore year. And I was, you know, one of the first users on it. The value prop was immediately accessible to me and I didn't... What number of user were you? Don't play coy. (laughs) I was 585, although I've since deleted the account and with it, like... You know, a lot of really <laughs> memeable pictures of me. Like, there's literally hundreds of very memeable <laughs> photos of me that are just gone, and I, I probably regret that. Uh, so if, you know, Facebook doesn't yeah. actually <laughs> honor deletion and anyone from there is listening to it, uh, you know, slide into my Urbit DMs. And we can get the memeing going. Um, But yeah, I didn't have any of these really speculative thoughts at the time about how it would be an operating system. It was just a really strong product market fit for, I want to keep track of all my contacts and manage everything. Um, And it did that. And then as I saw the other stuff, I actually wasn't as excited about it as you might think from how I'm talking about it now, because I think I only see those programming and operating system possibilities more in hindsight. At the time, it was more just like, you know, annoying games that were there. Um, And so I think I don't have this huge pessimism that the right version of this can't be done. But looking back on it, it is really interesting to look at, you know, which factors stopped that trajectory from going forward. So if we take the trajectory was, you know, contact book, 
to, you know, random apps. And then there could have been this, you know, sort of hockey stick of, you know, you can do all these, you know, all these other things and it becomes a full operating system for your social life. And I think that's, that's pretty appealing to me. And I think the thing that gets like hooks programmers when they see systems, uh, or at least there's only one system like it, but like, like Urbit is probably the feeling you would have had as a programmer in a hypothetical 2013 where that had happened and where Facebook had this would be this feeling of, I have a social graph. The pe- a lot of people I want to interact with are fixed in it in a certain way and I can do anything I want with it. It's, you know, fully composable. Um, it's, it's just, yeah, it's sort of this holy grail that now feels really accessible. And this, this conversation for me is a way of, I don't know, it's often cool to think of the past and think of like uh, the ways things could have been worse and the way they could have been better. And so my classic one is I'm just, I'm very convinced that, you know, if Steve Jobs had gotten cancer in 2000, we would have been stuck with Blackberries up till now. Like there was like, it, it actually took like a person putting the stuff together to do that. And this is kind of the opposite. You have the great man theory of history. That's a whole interesting topic. I actually... Tolstoy would argue with you. He would, he would, but he's dead, so he can't argue with me. He obviously wasn't great enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't a great enough man not to die. I think I agree, without going too philosophical, I think the, I would strongly agree with him that, like, you know, the moment creates, like, creates that, but it's not as much about... A great man. I'm actually treating Jobs not as like a man, but as a fork in the road, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think that hmm. Facebook's decisions to do this or not were founded in, you know, they were probably founded in the regulatory environment, crypto not being available, um, you know, all of the complications in doing that, making enough money as it is. There's a lot of reasons and factors that aren't about a man. The Jobs hypothetical is more to say that. Um, I don't think that the iPhone is some inevitability. It required at least, if not a person, a set of circumstances to happen in the Bay Area uh, at that time is more what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I think that idea of inevitability is really interesting in the crypto space because everyone has their own opinion about what is inevitable. It seems like someone... So many people, no one is speculative. No one thinks there are many possible futures. It's a group of people who all believe in one possible future that are pointing in slightly different ways that this coin is going to be the only coin. It's only Bitcoin. It's only this. It's only that. And if we say that nothing is inevitable, it actually empowers us to learn from these lessons and to take this web zero approach that we've described and say, actively, we are going to rebuild and create something that is not necessarily inevitable, but something that we believe in. I've told you about my like urban or crypto, like Calvinism, right? Which I think is like the correct way to approach it, which is that, uh, well, you know, like just as my sort of butchering of Calvinism, which would probably get me slaughtered on the streets of Geneva in the mid 1500s is that like, you know, (laughs) you're you're pre, you're predestined uh, for, you know, salvation or damnation. uh, But it has that whole kind of, fun circular logic in it, which is how do you know who's predestined? Well, you know, they're doing the right thing. They're living a good life, right? And so I think of like the inevitability of um, a new operating system for crypto pretty similarly, which is that I think it's inevitable and predestined with the primitives we have here, but the only way you actually know that it is, is by serving it and building and like 
building it forward. So it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's very much that I forget what they I forget what it was called in that you know early version of Calvinism, but it was it was something on the lines of um, you know you you sort of you sort of have to show it. Um, and it just, it just sort of perfectly embodied that circular logic. And I think that that kind of logic is really powerful once you're convinced that the base primitives exist to keep yourself, you want to stay in this state of both like, you know, perfect optimism and hope and also like, just like, you know, worried you're going to operating system hell at all times. Yeah. I mean, operating system hell is a place that it seems we so often exist and I, I keep coming back to people might think, why are we talking about operating systems? This is a crypto podcast, but it we really, I think, both believe, Tim has convinced me, that what is going to make crypto achieve its, its promise is a crypto blockchain web zero operating system that connects all of these disparate elements, unifies it from a developer and user experience. Yeah, and I think one thing this conversation should make clear if we start to kind of tie it back to a defense of Web 2 is that I do see this missed... Web 2 for me is not as much a story of like big tech taking over the world as much as it is the story of kind of a cool, expedient hack to try to create operating systems almost faster than we deserved for a networked world. And then this, you know, fall out of like, you know, the garden of Eden where the innocence is lost. It just becomes an ad platform and it doesn't fulfill that promise. So I think the reason that I think an operating system for crypto and this like rebuilding web zero on that basis is so important is because I've seen that, you know, we were actually sort of close in the last iteration of the web and maybe, maybe closer than people know, maybe like just a different, Maybe if it had been, I don't know, like a 19, you know, an 1890 regulatory environment, um, like maybe it would have happened. <laughs> like, is this, I know, we're kind of like doing this, you know, steampunk crypto 1890s thing where computers exist, but you could imagine <laughs> without too much trouble, I think, a different world that has some different primitives and some like different, you know, arrangements of political, legal, financial uh, stuff where, you know, let's say Facebook is able to keep going on that upward trajectory and turn into a full operating system. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think what you're saying about what some of these things could have been points us back to the fact that these companies we're talking about, Facebook, Google, Twitter, they started out as nerdy garage projects like Urbit. You know, they were a small group of people filling a niche that they were interested in. They were programming. They were doing the work. And there was just not the right environment to fill out this this operating system in a way that could, could serve all our needs. But now our technology has changed. And as much as decentralization is a, is a buzzword that I wonder if people even know or have any idea what it means anymore, it does offer the possibility that the next large-scale operating system with significant network effects may not fall prey to these same issues that something like Facebook did. That's a really good way of putting it. Like, I, I, Rather than defining decentralization, I would almost define it as the quality that like 
gives us a chance. Like we've sort of gone back to web zero again. It's like, you know, it's this idea of like, you know, you get all these different tries at civilization and you try one, it gets to a certain point, then it falls down. Then you try like the next one, it gets to a certain point, then it sinks down and falls into the swamp. And this is like, you know, the third or the fourth one that, you know, the, the question is always, why is this time different? Fermi's great filter. Right, right, right. Exactly. So there's the, I, really that's actually, you know, almost, it's actually fun to finish these things on a, that kind of tie back or cliffhanger, which is important for all podcasts, which is, you know, I think a, a lot of the question around uh, web zero that we want to build is, is there a great filter for operating systems or sort of net, we'll call them like networked systems. Is there something that makes them fall down all the time or were the early ones just too early? Were the, were the right pieces not in place yet? Of course, I think everyone knows where I stand and if I'm wrong, like, you know, you'll never hear about me again. If I'm right, like, you know, our names will echo like along with the great names of computer history <laughs> that everyone knows. This podcast will either be um, part of the memorial that is made to us or will be burned alongside our bodies. All right. Well, that seems like an appropriately optimistic place to wrap this up. And I think it really does get at the ways in which we are interested in learning from the history of things like Web2 to rebuild our digital infrastructure from the ground up and create connections and networks and systems that make new things possible for for developers and for users that's that's what we're about we're about possibilities here on web zero so tim uh thank you so uh we'll see you next time on web zero later guys